Morning Ridge Church. And Merry Christmas. Oh, oh, good, good. All right, all right. Much better. Well done, Randy. You've led them well. Um, all right, so uh, kids, if they want to head out now, can head out to reach kids. Your teachers are waiting for you. All right, off we go. All right, so uh, it is Christmas time. We've noticed this. Um, so uh, last week, last week we started talking about um, Revelation 2. Revelation 2, uh, which is, seems like an odd Christmas text. Um, yes, it is an odd Christmas text. Uh, and we want to keep in mind something ab about Christmas. So Christmas time is, is typically a time of, of waiting, of anticipation, of kind of building this excitement for the coming of Jesus. All right, that's great. That's great. And we can kind of like symbolically enter into that. We can get excited about it. But we recognize that Jesus, uh, I'm going to break this. He's already come. He came. He came. We, we missed it. We missed it in some sense. All right. So uh, we are waiting for the birth of Jesus. It, it happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, the, that cat's out of the bag. All right. And we can kind of enter back in and be like, okay, we can like pretend to get excited about the coming of Jesus. But Christmas is the first coming. There is a second coming of Jesus. And the first coming was, was to prepare the way for us. We saw last week that Jesus is our first love. That Christmas, Jesus came to, to propose to his bride. To choose us, to, to gather his people, to, to make a way for them. But now that we're in this season, truly, at this point in history, we're not just waiting for Jesus to come and, and choose us. We're waiting for him to come and, and get us. So we might be with him forever. So we might receive all the blessings that are offered in him. And so this Christmas season, we're, we're looking not just to his first coming, but to his second coming. And we're using Ephesians, this letter to the, the church in Ephesus, in Revelation, to, to hear how we can prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's read again Revelation 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. So we're turning to Revelation 2, very last book in your, in your Bible here. Revelation 2. Right. And read with me as, as I read. To the angels of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, as we think about um, your second coming, as we think about the fact that you came once and are coming again, I ask that you would help us to prepare well. That we'd prepare knowing that you are coming, that you came and, and you are coming again and 
Father, as we hear your commandments of how we can embrace you as our first love, I ask that you'd give us open eyes and ears, as you say, to, to hear these words and to conquer and to be lifted up to the heights. Father, we want to be with Jesus. We want to be with him at, at your right hand. And so, Father, would you help us to, to prepare ourselves well? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right. So, uh, first of all, I just want to summarize a little bit from what we talked about last week. And last week, we talked about the fact that we all abandon Jesus. We all abandon Jesus. We all have abandoned Jesus. Every day, we abandon Jesus. Now, that can look, that can look different ways. Um, we have the more classic, like, okay, you abandon Jesus every time you sin. Every time you choose other lovers, other idols, other kind of spouses to run after. And we can abandon Jesus and go on this kind of path to glory uh, using kind of the world as its means. Okay, so we can, we can try to claim, climb the ladder of, of fame and fortune and kind of leave Jesus behind. That we don't want this kind of religious path. We want, we want the way of the world. And we leave Jesus and the cross and the Christmas behind and kind of forge our own way. We, we can abandon Jesus. All right, we can also do the more religious way of, of kind of taking that same path. And we can go on these like self-improvement journeys. We take the religious way. And we've abandoned Jesus and say, you know, I'm just going to make myself a better person. I'm going to be a good guy. I'm going to be a, a holy, healthy, happy Christian and do what I need to do to be a good Christian in the eyes of God. It doesn't have to look like this, like, hedonistic pleasure-seeking. No, it can look like just trying to work really hard and forgetting about Jesus, forgetting about what he did first. In both of those scenarios, we abandon Jesus. We abandon him in, in various ways throughout, throughout our days, throughout our weeks, throughout our years. Now, last week we saw that we, I hope we've all accepted that. That is the reality of our relationship with Jesus, that we abandon our first love. What we didn't talk about last week was Jesus' his three commandments and the solution that he gives. He tells us to, to remember, to repent, and to return. Three commandments to help us return to this, this Jesus that we have abandoned. And so today we're going to be looking at those commandments, what it actually means. So first we're going to jump in and look at this first commandment, to remember to remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Verse 5. Now, the first step to being returned, to returning to Jesus, to coming back to him, is to remember from where you've fallen. All right. Now, what does that mean? All right. I, I'm afraid that most of us take it, take it one way. That we hear that and we think, okay, I need to remember when I was doing well in the Christian life, when I was at, at the heights of my faithfulness and goodness and, and devotion to Jesus. And so maybe we think back to like this golden age of when we were doing really well. Maybe we had that like magic church that can never be, never be matched. All right, you had that, you had your college community maybe. And it's this like blissful, 
wonderful paradise of people who are all exactly like you, and you're amazingly you get along well with everyone because everyone's at your exact same age and your same major, and it's wonderful. Um, all right, maybe you have this favorite teacher that taught you so much, and you remember, you know, I just I learned so much theology. Every week was new. Every every sermon was was enlightenment. Your golden age. All right, or maybe, maybe it looks like you think back and you think, okay, remember how high I've fallen. Remember when I used to be so faithful. I remember when I used to be an evangelist. I remember when I used to be so, so passionate about Jesus. I used to go on mission trips or, or you used to just read your Bible every single day faithfully. And you think about your, your past life and you think, oh, what happened? How did I fall? Where did all my love, where did all my passion go? Where did all my devotion for Jesus go? And you hear this and you say, okay, yes, Jesus. I remember, I remember how, high, how far I have fallen from. I do need to remember that. And we think, okay, I need to get back there. And we try to get back there. And maybe you, you try to reread the same books that you read before. You try to get in your same community that you read before. You're, you're reading the same passage over and over. Like, I used to love this. Like, why isn't it working? God, bring me back. Why have you taken me? Why have you removed me from the heights of this Christian life? All right. I want to remind us of something. All right, remember, remember we talked last week about how well the church in Ephesus was doing, actually. All right, so how well, they're, they're, they're toiling for the gospel. They're enduring patiently. They're pursuing Jesus with everything that they have. They're not growing weary. They're, they're theological experts. And they're crushing the Nicolaitans who are clearly evil for some reason. Um, and I want us to remember that they, they are at their, the height of their spiritual works. That for many of us, if we remember when we were doing the best, we'd say we looked exactly like the church of Ephesus. That we were working hard, we were toiling, we were being good Christians. All right, but what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from the heights from which you have fallen. He's telling these people at this time who are doing well in the moment that they have fallen. And they haven't fallen because they've, they've become lax on their good works, they haven't fallen because their, their theology is wrong. No, they've fallen because they have abandoned Jesus. It's not about works. It's not about their theology. It's about their connection to Jesus. And in abandoning Jesus, that is how they fell. And so I'll remind you this morning of, of what the true heights are. Of how we are actually lifted up. How, how we reach the apex of the Christian life. And it's by nothing but Jesus. In nothing but Jesus are we lifted up to the heights. That's, that's the greatest height we can reach. So uh, in a related letter, so we're talking about the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Well, Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus. And ironically, he talks about the heights. He starts with talking about the heights of Jesus. And he says, he says this, To remember, remember the great might that God worked in Christ when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, 
above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He says that that's where Jesus is. That that is where Jesus is. He is lifted up above every rule and power and authority and dominion. That he's been lifted up higher than every single name that has ever been named. Not only now, but in the, in the age to come for all eternity. That's where Jesus sits. He sits at the right hand of God. All right, you cannot get any higher than that. Jesus lifted up as high as you can get. That is the heights. And then he says, in, in Ephesians 2.6, he says, Even when you are dead in your, trans, uh, in your trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. All right, when we talk about Jesus being lifted up higher than any other, higher than any other name, if you are in Jesus, if you're connected to Jesus, you have been lifted up to that same height. Above every other name, above other, every other authority, you've been seated at the right hand with Jesus because you're in him and you're with him. Now, why do I tell you that? All right, the heights that you reach by being connected to Jesus and nothing but that, you will be higher than you'll ever, ever be. And you cannot get any higher than that. Once you have Jesus, you have been lifted up. And if you exchange anything else for Jesus, you will fall. You will fall. And I want to remind you that uh, Paul, Paul continues and he says uh, elsewhere, he talks about Romans 10. And he says, okay, how, how, do you, how did you get there? How did you raise up to the heights? And he, said, he says this, he says, uh, don't ask who will ascend into heaven to bring God down. Or who will descend into the abyss as to bring Christ up from the dead. No, what does the Bible say? It says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. All right, what is God saying there? He's saying, oh wait, why did Jesus come down? Did he come down because we climbed up there with our righteousness and dragged him down to earth? No. No, he didn't incarnate because we were such nice people. Or because we had such great works, because we managed to drag him down here and force him to do it, because, you know, he just had to save us. No. Jesus came because he loved us, and he chose to do it. You didn't have any part in that. I didn't have any part in that. No one went up there to bring him down. And we don't have to ascend the heights of, of righteousness and faithfulness and devotion to bring Jesus down here. In the same way, is it, who, who will descend into the abyss as to bring Christ from the dead? We didn't have to go down there and bring Christ from the, from the grave. That he died on the cross, and when he rose to life, we didn't have any hand in that. We didn't help him. He wasn't thinking, well, no, like, Peter's just such a nice person. Like, uh, that helps. Like, thanks for the strength, Peter. Thanks for the motivation. No, he loved us before that, and independent of that, he wasn't thinking of, of us and our good works. He wasn't thinking of us and our great theology. He loved us. And that's why he did it. And when Jesus comes again, he's not going to come again for those who are so faithful 
and have risen to the heights of the Christian life and just have great theology and beautiful good works. No, he's going to come because he loved us first and he loves us now. All right, why do I say that? I say that because I think it's our natural tendency to, to think and approach Jesus as if, like, well, how am I doing in the Christian life? Like, how am I doing? Am I, am I doing so well? I need to remember and, and, and get back to, to faithfulness and goodness. And No, you need to get back to Jesus. That once you have him and only him, you are at the heights of the Christian life. You're at the heights of glory because you are with Jesus where he is. You are seated at the right hand of God. And the problem is not that we need to work harder. The problem is we don't get it. We don't understand that love. Which is why Paul, uh, in that same letter to the, the Ephesians, he prays for them. He doesn't pray that they would try harder or, or work and be better Christians. What does he say? He says that, I ask that these people who are, who are grounded and rooted in the love of Jesus might actually understand. That they'd actually understand how high and wide the length and breadth and depth of Jesus' love. That it is unconditional, that it was unearned, that you don't have to do anything to attain it. You didn't have to do any great Christian feats. You just had to receive it. Confess Christ with your mouth, believe in your heart that he did it for you, and you're done. They had fallen by abandoning Jesus. You don't fall by your sin. You don't fall by your, your good works and your theology. You fall by abandoning Jesus. And so he calls us to remember. Not to remember what we did, but what Jesus did for us. To remember who our first love is and how he loved us first. All right. That's how we get back to our first love. Amen? Amen. All right. But Jesus, just for, just for fullness sake, he has two more commandments. I, that, that probably would probably be enough. But he has two more. He has two more. He then goes on to say, repent and do the works you did at first. To repent and to, to return to the works you did at first. All right. So what does repentance look like in this case? What does repentance look like? So repentance is, is like feeling the weight of your sin, feeling the, the foolishness of your own heart. Now, for those who, who are drawn towards the sins of the world and towards trying to like attain glory through the world's means, what does that look like to repent? I think it mostly looks like comparing your first love, Jesus Christ, to the things that you love in the world. And to recognizing what an idiot you are. Forever running after these stupid things. And so you look at them and, and repentance looks like, in some sense, like, why would I love this thing? Why would I love pleasure or comfort or, or materialistic things or the acclaim of people? Like, they will never die for me. They will never come for me. They will never choose me they will never go down to the abyss. They will not come down from heaven to, to find me. They will make me work and work and work. And then they will leave me high and dry. Tell, tell your, your false loves that. Cut them down. Tell, you, tell them why you should hate them. Because you should. And then look at Jesus and remind yourself, like, Jesus, you, you have loved me. 
You have come for me, and you didn't make me work for it. You don't offer me less and less of yourself, the, the less I work. No, you give all of yourself, no matter what. That's what repentance looks like. And it doesn't have to come with guilt or shame. It's just speaking the truth into those things. Comparing your, your false loves to Jesus, and Jesus will come on top. Now, what does it mean for, what does it mean for those who aren't running after false loves? You're running after works and theology. How do you repent? All right, in very much the same way. Tear down your good works. Tear them down and show them how false they are. That like, I, who did you die for today? No one. You didn't ascend to the heights. You didn't come down from heaven. These things aren't required of you and, and you can't do them if they were. Kill your good works. Tell them why you shouldn't love them. You shouldn't depend on them. There's no glory in them. And compare your good works and your good theology to the works of Jesus who gave himself fully for you, who is perfectly righteous, who speaks every word that God has given him, who has sacrificed everything. Repent that you would ever try to replace Jesus' good works with your own. All right, and finally, finally, he says, return to the works you did at first. All right, this is where the, the works, works he ones among you are excited again. Like, oh man, okay. I thought for a second that we were going to not talk about works in this, this sermon. Uh, we're finally back to works. Good thing we, we, we made it through that 15-minute chunk where we weren't turning at works. Um, and back to trying hard. All right. Uh, what are the first works? the works that you did at first. I'm going to say that first, so I, I've kind of tried to balance out the like person who's just like crazy sinning and hedonism and the person who's religious and a Pharisee. And they kind of have different approaches. You, you approach things differently. But in this case, the first work is the same. <coughs> what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in the manger who came down from heaven for you. Look at Jesus who is on the cross, naked and ashamed for you, dying for your sins, not his own. Just look at Jesus and love Jesus. Remind yourself why you love him, and not even why you love him, but why he loves you, and how much he's loved you, and how much you don't deserve it, but he loves you anyway. That is the first work. And if you do that first work, you won't have to spend any time doing the other works because all the other works will just flow out of it. That's what we're actually told. That, that if we do that one and we actually love Jesus and see how much he loves us, we naturally obey. We naturally obey and want to obey and actually have a reason to obey because we just love him. And then the works become things like praising Jesus and adoring him. And standing in awe of him. Then we'll actually do the thing that Westminster says we're supposed to do. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. No works, no theology is going to get us there. 
What's going to get us there? The love that Jesus has for us. When we've truly seen it, and when we believe it, and we understand it. And so my prayer for, for all of us is the same as, as Paul's. In Ephesians, that we'd understand the length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Jesus for us. That we'd be so overwhelmed by it and we'd be lifted up to the heights because of it. Because it's not about us, it's about what Jesus has done. And when he comes again, it's not going to be because we were good. It's going to be because he is good and because he is faithful. Let's get excited about that. This Christmas and, and forevermore. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that we didn't have to go get him to bring him down on Christmas. That we didn't have to raise him from the dead on Easter, but you did these things through him that, that we be, might be free. That we might be free from running after the works of the world or the works of religion. That we'd freely receive these things and be lifted up to the heights. Father, I ask that you would remind us each day that when we feel guilt and shame creeping in, when we feel like we've fallen from heaven, that we remember that it is Jesus who keeps us there. And you have done the work and you have loved us first. Would you help us to remember our first love? And give us hearts that would truly believe that you love us that much. For our sins, you've risen the life for us. And there's nothing left to do but to wait in glorious anticipation. Jesus, we love you, we thank you.